and welcome to this episode of the art and design of sci-fi and fantasy, mystery and horror. In today's episode, I speak with Sean Malley, who's written a book about archaeology and science fiction. Um, and he talks about uh, various um, sci-fi TV shows, books, movies um, that use archaeology as sort of the basis for their storyline, how um, the past is used to create a story of the future. Um, so we get into a lot of uh, interesting topics. Uh, we talk about Smallville, um, 2001, Blade Runner. We talk about um, the Iraq War and efforts there to preserve um, archaeological objects and sites and uh, that sort of thing. He says that's sort of the basis. That's where his idea for the book came from was um, the stuff going on in the Iraq War. So, definitely, we talk a lot about sci-fi and a lot about archaeology. So, if you like either either of those two subjects, you'll uh, you'll enjoy this conversation. All right. Well, thank you and enjoy. I'm speaking with Sean Malley, author of Excavating the Future. Thank you for speaking with me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Chris. So, first, uh, tell me how did you get into um, studying and writing on this subject on um, contemporary, uh, contemporary science fiction? Well, it's, it's, it's been a kind of a long journey, I have to say. Uh, it takes me uh, way back to grad school back in the, back in the late 90s uh, where I was studying at the University of British Columbia. I started, started playing around with this, this idea of archaeology as a, as a kind of image and metaphor for understanding history. So I'm a... a Victorianist by trade, so I was looking at the way uh, way discoveries in the, in the 19th century really uh, did create a, a weird kind of science fiction of sorts for Victorians, a, a way of understanding themselves in, in time and uh, in politics as well. How, how did uh, specifically the um, discoveries of Syria by a guy named Austin Henry Laird in the mid-19th century, how how this guy's discovery uh, really sparked national interest in understanding, among many things, uh, the ways in which the, the, the colonial world, for instance, uh, um, operated over kind of vast, vast periods of time. So the 19th century really saw kind of cousins in the, in the, in the, uh, in the Assyrian world. This is, this is in the Middle East. And anyway, my interest in the, and the way politics and archaeology function within narratives that were, in some ways, science fictional in the sense that that uh, objects um, in the past uh, really function similarly to objects in the present in the science fictional sense that things things constructed in the past are really are really uh, uh, kind of uh, technological things mm-hmm. that uh, become part of the narratives of science fiction that we see so often uh, today in our contemporary understanding of what science fiction is. So that's kind of a long-winded answer. I mean, I've just been, I've been playing around with this idea of how, how objects live in time and how they they fabricate historical identity. And, and, the, and these these are, are often quite un, un, very problematic in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, political formulations. And that's really the, the heart of my book. Hmm. Okay. Um, well, let's uh, let's talk about the book. How do you um, break out the chapters? You know, what sort of um, progression uh, does it does it uh, take from chapter one to the end? Well, it's um, 
I, I think I start in a kind of commonsensical understandings of of archaeology. Uh, there's the book has three parts. Um, it begins with uh, part one, which I call "Battling Babylon." And I'm looking at, at uh, science fictional texts that are really looking at the ways um, the Middle East becomes a, a, a scene for science fictional narratives, uh, and how these uh, these narratives themselves really do resonate within contemporary uh, geopolitics since the since the Gulf War, especially and especially since since nine eleven. So the first chapter begins, I think, with a, a really, excuse me, a very, uh, a very sort of straightforward and, and seemingly unproblematic representation of archaeology in the in a, in a telefilm um, trip read Manticore, which uh, which was released on the Sci-Fi Network in two thousand and five, and it's a story. It's got the um, uh, the story about about soldiers going going into Iraq. They, uh, the, the narrative begins with the looting of the Baghdad Museum, pretty, pretty infamous and horrific kind of uh, moment in the, in, the, in, the, in the Second Gulf War mm-hmm. in 2003. And the narrative begins with that kind of problem. What, what does it mean to return to a place that, that we've called our, our origins? Uh, the Mesopotamia is, the, is the, the often known as the birthplace or cradle of civilization. What does it mean to come back with guns <laughs> to a place uh, where that very that very sense of origin itself is so profoundly disrupted uh, by narratives of conflict? So this science fiction is very it seems very straightforward. And and what happens is these guys they they arrive with their guns and they they uh, they find that there's this uh, uh, monster kind of unleashed um, uh, from the from the museum during this looting process. So they very quite unproblematically un- uh, kill the beast and restore order. Uh, so what I argue in that chapter is, is, is kind of, I guess, paradigmatic for the whole novel, that these kinds of uh, returns through through Hollywood cinema, through uh, our science fiction narratives, to these places of conflict, uh, really are enacting uh, real-world geopolitical issues that, that situate archaeology not as so much a, uh, a humanizing science, a way of a way of unproblematically looking at time and notions of origins, but ones which are deeply invested in geopolitical activities, like like occupying uh, a space. What does it mean for the West to be occupying uh, this 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 mythological space of of, of Mesopotamia? Um, so this uh, this 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 film really gives us a, a, an opportunity to enter into this mythology. And I think the book is, is, is interested as well as a whole of entering into the ways we construct history from seemingly stable points of origin through seemingly stable um, science, uh, science fictional narrative mm-hmm. or framework called archaeology. And so the book basically just looks at that idea, uh, that, that central move uh, as it moves from chapter chapter to chapter. So finally we, we end up we're talking about cyborgs, uh, these kind of meta meta archaeological figures or themselves um, are just are are the accrue time and technological meaning um, uh, for the future. So they're really projections of our of our present self. But the kinds of artif- or cultural artifacts I'm looking at say uh, Prometheus is a good example, uh, really are asking us to really question how we create Again, uh, visions of the future based on on, on versions of the past. Mm-hmm. So, some of what you um, 
describe brings to mind steampunk. Steampunk. Um, do you discuss sure. that? I haven't actually um, used any steampunk in this, but there's there's another book. <laughs> well, steampunk is a is a very popular uh, Victorian uh, trope. So mm-hmm. uh, we we seem to, at this moment very very culturally interested in in resurrecting the Victorian era and making it and making it. Um, uh, present to our imagination through through cinematic um, through cinematic um, uh, media mm-hmm. like uh, I think of um, Penny Dreadful I think is a pretty good example of a pretty popular series that was running just recently mm-hmm. uh, our fascination with the kind of horror science fictional genres that were that were really came out of the 19th century and are presented to us today mm-hmm. so uh, I it, it's not it, it's no coincidence I think that we're that our world, which is so steeped in science fiction, to understand how we how we live with with rapidly evolving technology, looks back again to another kind of stable origin in the Victorian era, where we we have we projected this idea of steampunk onto onto the Victorians, who were themselves struggling, like H.G. Wells, with what does it mean to live in a world of rapidly changing technological advancement? Uh, we just think of War of the Worlds. Um, which begins with uh, with uh, the narrator reflecting on on, uh, on on ethics. What does it mean to be an ethical person, a civil and a civilized nation, in a world in which our 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 technology is evolving into the to the point of becoming Martians, these kind of uh, uh, extraterrestrial beings, at the same time as we as we are busy killing people off in the rest of the world. So, what other works um, do you touch on in this book? Um, well, there's, a, there's a, a, a number of things. I think there's about nine chapters. Each chapter is, is devoted to a book. So, uh, I, I just talk about Manticore, this this telefilm that I, I presume very few people have actually seen. If you happen to be watching the Sci Fi Channel, you know, some Saturday morning, you would have seen that. Yeah. Some more, uh, some more uh, popular uh, works. Um, Stargate, uh, the film, Stargate SG One is chapter two. Um, Transformers Two: Revenge of the Fallen. I look at that uh, in detail in chapter three. Uh, I move through part two of the book, uh, where I move from uh, this idea of Babylon, this return to a, a very, a very central place in our mythology, um, our cultural mythology, that being um, Mesopotamia, to looking at uh, the trope of the ancient alien, which is such an important uh, image in in science fiction today. So I look at, um, of all things, uh, Ancient Aliens, that show. Um, uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is Chapter 5. Uh, and Smallville uh, is Chapter 6, which I consider an ancient alien narrative um, in the way that the show reinvigorates the uh, the Superman narrative um, through archaeology. If anyone's familiar with the show, um Clark Kent discovers his history had been written 500 years ago on the walls of the on the Kwachi Cave. So again, a, a very unpro a very uh, problematic origin story or, or a re-origin story for uh, for Superman in the in the post 9/11 age. Then part three of the book, um, I call this uh, cyborg sight, uh, looking at the. Uh, the cyborg is a kind of archaeological figure as well, uh, uh, a technological being, but a, a, a being that also carries along with it its histories of technology, its histories of artifactual production, uh, and, and the material modes of understanding um, 
cultural identity. Um, so I start with artificial intelligence. Um, then chapter seven uh, is an examination of Battlestar Galactica, which is one of my favorite chapters in the book. Um, mm-hmm. I have to say, I really enjoyed that reboot of this show. So uh, it, the show itself is uh, Ronald Moore's uh, reboot is the kind of archaeology itself of the Battlestar Galactica um, uh, universe. Uh, and I argue in that chapter that that the, the whole the whole narrative is really about challenging this idea of origin. So Cylons and humans uh, are and the colonial humans are are really, of course, versions and productions of each other. Origins stories have to have to disintegrate um, as the series progresses. And, and I argue actually that the whole the whole series is a kind of long archaeological expedition to go back to some place of origin. So they end up on Earth, which is, of course, the origin of, of our species. And then the last chapter looks at uh, at Prometheus, which is, again, another kind of archaeology. Maybe this is the phase we are in cinema, or science fiction cinema, too, where we're going back, or we're trying to create origin stories for, uh, for some very, again, uh, important uh, science fictional documents. So Prometheus is the, is the final chapter. So there's quite a range of, of kinds of science fiction uh, there, I would say. Um, yeah, and as you were speaking, it actually, I started thinking about, you know, when you were saying about origin stories and that sort of thing, uh, three prominent movies sort of also came to mind um, regarding that. So, like 2001, you know, it starts looking at, you know, it in the movie it's present day, but really it's looking at an ancient time where they discover you know, this, the obelisk, and then it moves forward to, through time. Um, I thought of Blade Runner, where they're actually, during the course of the movie, um, the main character, Deckard, goes to the creator's dusty old mansion where he finds the old, original, you know, um, synthetic beings that he created. You know, again, it's like looking at um, the old objects that came before, and um, and then finally, Star Wars, actually, the, the first movie, you know, Luke is given his father's old lightsaber. Like, it harkens back to, like, here's this old object that shows you what your your future destiny is. So, I don't know if that fits in what you were, you know, well with what you're talking about, but it just kind of made me, got my mind going around that. Yeah, you're quite right, Chris. I mean, each of those uh, those films, which, which are, are such prominent, uh, films in the in the history of science fiction, uh, film uh, and science fiction mythology, all use that trope. I mean, at the end end of the day, uh, the, the very basic uh, element that I'm looking at is the way science fiction narratives are constructed. They construct versions of a future that have to be in some way rooted in some point of origin, and 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 that that relationship is always going to. Uh, ask us a couple of questions. Do we accept origins as 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 uh, deterministic for the future, or how much of, uh, how do these narratives themselves, which pay honor and, uh, and uh, honor to these origins themselves, beg to be questioned? So, um, in uh, I think two thousand one is a great example where um, we have a distant past, uh, a near a near future. Or the space age um, is playing out in um, in in this around this archaeological expedition on the moon, mm-hmm. and then this and then this this future where or this imagined uh, technological future anyway, 
where where David Bowman is going through this crazy uh, voyage into the into the infinite and, and beyond, and then this this evolution into the the, uh, the Star Child, right, where he comes back, like the last image of the film, mm-hmm. where the this sort of fetus is, is is hovering around the Earth, and we know from from uh, uh, Arthur C. Clarke's story that the child is there to stop a, a nuclear war, so. We have these moments of violence all running all along in the film, um, and really, 2001 charts. I would say the whole progression of my book, where we start in a, a particular point of origin, a location. Uh, I think Mesopotamia functions that way. Mm-hmm. We end up in the in, in the present, where we're trying to understand these relationships with the past, and and trying to find out ways to 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 better kill one another <laughs> out of them, you know, uh, so we have uh, in 2001 the, the total uh, uh, tension between the Russians and the, and the Americans, which are really just playing up those space age um, tensions, geopolitical tensions. Then we have this version of the, of the future where where these tensions are taken along, so we have Hal actually kind of exterminating humans, right? This, this artifact menu that goes right back to that moment when, when, uh, when the, the apes Picks up the bone and realizes I can I can kill you know so geopolitics is invented at that moment so yeah each of these films are are quite interesting in the way they present a world that I think we need to we need to be critical of it's too easy to accept this idea that we belong in certain times and places that we garner identity from them where we always need to be on the lookout for ways in which that that, that becomes part of conservative political agendas that make it all too easy for us to lay claim to to alternate histories to to long long and, and, and intense uh, histories as well uh, that have existed over time involving many kinds of groups yeah I was also trying to think of an exception um, in science fiction to what you're writing about um, and I thought I had it with Star Trek, the original series, where it's, you know, they exist without reference to their past. They're reaching out to the future. But then I realized one of the major storylines in Star Trek, the, the Khan storyline, that, that involves an episode where they discover this, you know, this old, um, dusty ship, the Botany Bay on this planet. You know, it like becomes an archaeological thing, and it turns out that the Botany Bay and Khan represent the, you know, the old violent past of, you know, Earth's history where they came out of the darkness and, and here's, here's Khan and his old ship, you know, appearing again to, to create havoc in their current world. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that, and, that, and, you know, that plays out over and over and over again. It's easy for us to kind of, in some ways, that we identify, like, well, Star Trek is a great series. Let's, let's, let's give it its due. I mean, it was uh, very politically uh, progressive for it, for its time, um, breaking down this idea of, of capitalism. It was a great one of racial tensions. Um, uh, really, in many ways, like 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 Planet of the Apes, it was it was a, it was a series and a movie that that really addressed current political tension and trying to come up with any some pretty good and creative solutions through again this this alternative medium medium of, of science fiction. But then again, these these narratives do become become quite become quite conservative as well. So they they direct us into into the conflict, but also sometimes away from. It's too easy for us to often to look back at, at Star Trek, for instance, with a great nostalgia, and, and so that we don't actually 
you know, the math of sexism in the show, well, I think it's a pretty good, pretty good example, mm-hmm. for sure. So, uh, how, how do, how do the, these reboots, uh, address these issues? You know, are, have they changed? Are they taking on just new forms? Or are they, uh, are they actually radical departures? Uh, Blade, the Bill News new Blade Runner is also quite interesting too, because what do you do when you have a, a self-conscious, uh, um, um, prosthetic being, you know, uh, as as a as a Blade Runner, you know, that really changes the game in many ways, I think. But then again, you have a meeting, meeting a kind of very conservative character in in in, um, in Decker, you know, has he evolved in time through this process? So I, I can't really answer all those questions, but it is interesting to see how how films themselves create artifacts that are that that you know are, are irresistible. You know, I have to go back to it. And, and play around with it. And what kind of new meanings are possible when this happens? Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about um, how you did your research. Obviously, you chose um, you know certain uh, limited set of films ha- or, or shows. Um, how did how did you go about choosing them among you know the wide range, and and how did you go about exploring it further? Your research. Well, the text that I chose all really have, I think, archaeology as a, as a central premise for telling its story. Um, they're not just, uh, like, I could have brought in, say, um, the fifth element, which begins in a, with, uh, you know, uh, these kind of weird beings uh, uh, who, who come to the pyramid and, and they leave the fifth element there in a key and a guardian, which creates a whole secret society. You know, and the film isn't real, in the end, isn't really all about that. Um so the texts I chose, in some way, are really gathered around the the idea of, uh, of of building a narrative, a version of time and space through old things and their and the uses to which they're put in alternate contexts. So that was my basic basic premise. With that in uh, with that in mind, um, Stargate is a pretty good example because here we have the the, the technology. Uh, that's required, the, the technological advancement, which is re- kind of a required element for any science fiction, is itself uh, really just a, um, uh, uh, it, it's created as an artifact. Back in time, uh, the SG-1 team discovers these things, and they become a way of building an entire storyline in the universe around the idea of old things that are actually futuristic at, at the same time. So... That was my basic uh, basic premise, and each of the each of the um, uh, texts that I chose to to write on uh, exemplify this. Like Transformers, there's a whole there's a whole series that is based on this ancient race living amongst us as kind of as artifacts, and they and they mirror, mirror and mimic artifactual uh, production of humans as we evolve. So in the end, I think each of these texts are, are become. Um, Versions of a story of, a, of, of of humans' evolution and how we try to map and understand and make sense of that evolution, and try to also be critical of of those evolutionary moves by trying to imagine what we're going to be like. Some version of our, our future self is going to is going to be like. So, what do we see in the Transformers? That is a good question. Uh, what have we always seen in Transformers? What have we always seen in this kind of fetishistic um, uh, relationship with machines, and especially with machines of war? I think I'm moving away from your away from your question here. Um, no, it's fine. <laughs> but but, yeah, but my but 
originally my research method methodology was I, I, Smallville is a pretty good example. Watching ten seasons of uh, of Smallville, um, trying to find connections between the origin story in season two of of well, actually season one. How, how do we connect uh, uh, the meteor shower? Uh, in which it would be a destructive meteor shower that brings the savior um, to season two, where where where, where um, Clark Kent is trying is trying to understand his his destiny, maybe as a as a conqueror. He doesn't know this at this point. I mean, he's a super powered being, and he, he he's, he's he's unsure of what his role is in the world. All the way through to season eight, nine, and ten, where. He's entering in, uh, entering into a kind of a uh, hesitantly into a public role. Uh, what does it mean to be this being? He never really works out into, the, into that last conservative gesture when he puts on the uh, tights and, and and launches up into the air. Um, so methodologically, I'm watching episode by episode and one team breakup and heart <laughs> after another. I tell you, it wasn't easy going. Um, you know, for a for a forty-something-year-old man to be watching teen uh, teen melodrama um, uh, for ten seasons, but through this process, uh, what I ended up doing was 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 re kind of creating the this evolutionary narrative itself and trying to trying to find those notes where where uh, the Superman myth intersected with the archaeological stories, put them together and see how they they worked against one another as well as for one another. So basically, this is what I did for every every text that I that I chose to work on, and it, it was it was it was difficult writing about um, about television. Actually, uh, we were just sort of beginning to kind of media studies to to understand how to write sensibly about about a medium that itself really resists. Uh, closure very often when you're talking about 10 years of the Stargate SG-1 how do you make sense of 10 years mm-hmm. but then you know the thousand word chapter that sort of thing film much more contained well, we can we can write more sensibly about about an experience that takes place you know in, in an hour and a half to two hours or so so how much did you incorporate um, thoughts and ideas of the people who produced or create or wrote these uh, these different works, and, and maybe also fan opinions, or did you basically look at it um, stripped of those ideas and, and come at it from a different direction? Well, this is definitely not a fan study, that's for sure. Um, uh, so that is a whole other uh, kind of burgeoning um, kind of criticism that, that is emerging. So what, is it, what does it mean for, for, for the fan base to be become really part of the narrative too I mean I, did, I touched this in, uh, on a bit in with Smallville it's impossible to to talk about a series uh, that is directed towards a, a teen viewership um, or without talking about how the teen audience does interact um, with uh, with the show so there's, a, there's a, always a, a small element of this um, my understanding of, of the way these these Films and TV shows uh, connected to the world. Um, of course, there's the review um, world, so uh, I was very interested in that. But your question is interesting because very much part of each of these chapters, as much as I could, um, I am interested in the technology of the film. How does how does film technology sound 
technology, uh, um, uh, use of CGI technology, how does that become part of the storytelling mechanism itself? Mm. So how do old things become part of a narrative through the very technology of film, which is itself a science fiction, is, is, is futuristic, is a technology that has become part of the way we understand the world and tell stories about, about, uh, about ourselves in time and space. So production is, is, is an important element of this text. So I'm not just coming to this looking for themes and ideas, but the way those themes and ideas are articulated by the very technological medium itself. Hmm. Um, so that's one element. Uh, so I'm very interested in, say, for instance, uh, Ronald Moore's podcast. Uh, about Battlestar Galactica, where he talks about how he's using incorporating CGI technology. For him, it's, it's a kind of a directorial, I mean, he arranges the space. Um, maybe he doesn't comment on its thematics, but the way he talks about, about CGI and how he's employing it becomes then another, another sort of field of representation that, that I can enter into and explore as, a, as, as part of larger paradigms and structures of storytelling itself and, and the ideas that stories do convey indirectly. So the production is a very, very important part of any of any kind of, especially an important part of a science fiction, uh, study of science fiction film, and which is, of course, a technology itself, um, which is shaping our vision of the future just as much as it shaped our vision of the, of the past as well. And another element or layer to this, too, is is to also look at the kind of uh, arrangements that are made between directors, producers, and uh, the forces that are really are shaping geopolitical agendas around the world. So, uh, how does how does uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull play upon um, uh, geopolitical relationships with with uh, with the Middle East, with uh, with uh, with film institutes, uh, the George Jordanian Film Institute, which was manu- which was created. You know, uh, along with uh, uh, Steven Spielberg, for instance, those sorts of relationships really do play into the kinds of stories about the Middle East uh, that uh, people like uh, Steven Spielberg present to us. Mm-hmm. Another good example of this is um, is in Transformers Two: Revenge of the Fallen. The uh, the relationships between Michael Bay as director um, with uh, with the with the Air Force, um, the Air, each mili- branch of the military in the U.S. has uh, liaison offices in Hollywood, so they promise uh, a great deal of realism um, uh, to, to 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 films like Transformers, which is a science fiction, which requires the kind of uh, the grounding in the real world um, militaristic uh, machinery for it to make sense to contemporary audience, so we can believe in the story. What, of course, is is also being created in these relationships is presenting through the guise of realism or the idea of realism or presenting, you know, uh, uh, bom- bombers bombing things um, is, is a relationship between the, the way the story itself presents in a kind of realistic, value-neutral way the way the U.S. military itself functions. Mm-hmm. And it's very on the surface, uncritical. So what that chapter tries to do is to is to look into that relationship, which is a which is a production question. Mm-hmm. And to see how the production questions themselves not just shape the narrative, but also invite questions about about the political role of of the relationship between the military and our 
genealogy. And archaeology itself is, of course, always has always played an important role in in conquest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what part of the research was most enjoyable for you? Oh, you know, it's pleasure. Pleasure comes <laughs> from uh, those eureka moments where you're, you're you're struggling to make connections, where um, where things start making sense. And I think this probably goes for most people who are writing, who are writing, uh, writing anything really. Um, looking through, I could think, for instance, looking at chapter, uh, the chapter four, which is on ancient aliens, watching, uh, I think, six seasons of, which I, which I think is a very ridiculous <laughs> show, uh, kind of a ludicrous, preposterous kind of, uh, kind of television show, which is, which is presenting this idea that, you know, we are, you know, we're, we've been manufactured by aliens, you know, and this is our, this is the, then there's a, there's a conspiracy to cover this up, mm-hmm. is to be able to sort of look beneath that, that kind of rhetoric, and even my own kind of revulsion at the, the kind of um, uh, the kind of narratives that they're constructing, and trying to find out where these these narratives really do connect to kind of larger cultural anxieties. Uh, uh, for instance, the Maya, the whole cultural frisson surrounding the Mayans in the 2012. If you recall that, the world was going to come to an end on oh, December yeah. 21st. Mm-hmm. So this show really taps into the, that anxiety, perpetuates these anxieties by by translating their kind of visual uh, near, uh, rhetoric into a rhetoric of fear, and and that rhetoric of fear uh, is is we're talking about what's the most pleasurable, the most what, what is the most pleasurable is finding out how these these images and these narratives really do connect to kind of larger patterns of fear mongering. Um, from 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 powerful people, so that we can keep our anxiety on all kinds of levels, especially at the especially at the level of popular discourse, high, so that we that we remain, you know, obedient is part of the is part of the the result of these sorts of stories. It mm-hmm. may, makes them popular too. Yeah. So, what did you find in your research that was most surprising? Oh, most surprising. Um, oh. That's a good question. Hmm. Um, what was I most <laughs> I was I was just surprised through the entire thing. I process. I'd have to say um, is is just. I think that the, the I ultimately the level at which the kinds of relationships I'm mapping out, say in the in the first chapter, are so pervasive in, in science fiction narratives that that do involve archaeology. That 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 we really can see in this in this entertaining medium what I think is ultimately the most powerful critical voice of, of conservative forces that, that 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 remind us over and over again that that places like uh, um, say Nineveh or Nimrod in Iraq are, are, are almost holy sites um, so the book ends I think on an interesting note where I'm looking at the ways in which um, there's this school in Oxford. It's a business, actually. The Digital Institute of Biblical, or sorry, Institute of Digital Archaeology. And what they're doing is they're 3D printing artifacts that have been destroyed by ISIS. Part of ISIS's program, of course, is to, is, is, is to whip through uh, through uh, their places of conquest and create their own their own movies about about destruction. All in the name, of course, of uh, uh, an 
iconoclastic uh, display of destroying idols. Mm-hmm. Right? But they're onto something because they're quite right because these uh, artifacts that we've located and venerated at the, at the origins of our of our uh, of Western culture, um, which have of course have allowed us to have uh, such important political and economic influence in places like like Iraq and Syria. Um, losing my train of thought here. Yeah, these things have become icons or, 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 or um, uh, even kind of religious symbols of, of the West. Mm-hmm. They know this very well. and So these become very important symbolic targets of retribution. Now, I think that's a very legitimate uh, political stance to take, a very legitimate kind of, uh, uh, kind of expression of, of dissent against the West. I don't, of course, agree with destroying these things. Uh, it's, of course, it's, 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 neo, it's kind of nihilistic at the same time. What I do find actually quite pessimistic and, and nihilistic is this, uh, this digital, um, Institute of Digital Archaeology, what, what they've been doing. They're based out of Oxford and they have government funding and they have support from Oxford University, uh, is to recreate through 3D printing. Mm-hmm. Artifacts that have been destroyed, in order to present and preserve this idea that these artifacts are invincible to forces like ISIS. Mm-hmm. What does it do? It, it is a kind of I think it's a very conservative kind of gesture, which puts a kind of a, 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 an absolute frame around these things, as if they are not as if they as if they are not part of conflict, as if they are not part of the, of the narrative centuries old of conflict that have that that holds so much meaning for well people like like me who are interested in seeing how these 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 things from the past really do uh, represent conflict in the world mm-hmm. if that makes any sense yeah it does um, that is a surprising thing for me it's interesting you mentioned the uh, destruction of artifacts I, I recall reading articles where uh, some archaeologists examined the videos closely and um Noticed that they were actually, in some cases, they were destroying fake replicas of the artifacts, and they were positing that they were um, selling the real ones on the black market, and then just you know creating kind of crude simile, you know, facsimiles of them, and destroying them for uh, PR purposes to say, "Here we are destroying yeah. the West." Um, so that's just and an it functions in the same way, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It has the same it has the same effect when it becomes a, a fiction. Mm-hmm. Or science fiction, when it becomes filmed, when the when it becomes framed in that narrative, mm-hmm. it, they, they, it props these things function like props mm-hmm. in, a, in a kind of a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So was and there on the other thing too? Is you're you're quite right, and and by doing so, it it also has driven up the price of antiquities, which are then are then sold on the black market, which are, of course are, are that kind of uh, commercial uh, proprietary. Um, Measures or, or, or motives are themselves um, very destructive. Mm-hmm. Taking things and, and placing them in in private contexts. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. Was there an issue you came across that was particularly difficult to um, research or come to a conclusion on that maybe you still uh, feel like you haven't um, come to a conclusion on, or, or just took a while to? Well, I think following what we've just been talking about, um, something that was that I found quite interesting, 
really at the beginning of this of this process was was really the the amount of energy and money that was invested in retelling the the, the invasion. The, really, I'm I'm, I'm going to say the, the misplaced invasion of Iraq to uh, as a response to to the 9/11 attacks. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm alone in sharing this view. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the the way narratives of of um, placement, the narratives of, of justification themselves uh, began to emerge around around the stories of archaeology. And we've touched we've touched on this in our conversation today. Um, one particular manifestation of this is uh, I found a trying to trying to get meaningfully meaningful dialogue with the Department of, of Defense and its in its its archaeological represent, representative about what it means to uh, to to follow armies. What does it mean for an archaeologist uh, to or any academic to 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 be a part of the military structure? And remain independent of it, and I, and I think that question is is an important one. And, how, and and of course the answer is they can't be. So what kinds of agendas are archaeologists, some archaeologists themselves, serving when they are part of the military structures that are part of reconstruction, that become part of um, the ways in which uh, the kind of healing arts, maybe of of of, uh, of, of archaeology themselves, become part of a, a story. In which uh, the return to Mesopotamia is itself a kind of healing act rather than a violent one. Mm-hmm. Trying to get those conversations going um, were, were difficult, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was there anything you discovered um, that emotionally moved you strongly, either positively or negatively? Mm. Well, I mean, having having researched, you know, in popular cultural ways um, the um, the ways in which Mesopotamia itself has has, has, has always been uh, foregrounded in our understanding of the West especially in times of conflict just well just to see the ISIS really going into places like Nimrud and destroying things I mean it, it is heartbreaking you know one one cannot help but feel a kind of uh, a kind of sadness for the end of things being able to, to signify in, in any other way other than through destruction. So, uh, no matter what kind of band aids are put on this, no matter how many three D printing operations go on, no matter how much crowdsourcing and and three uh, um, uh, D modeling uh, tries to fill in those holes, they they can never be. That is uh, that is it was very sad for me to 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 have to enter into that kind of space. It, it, it worked well, interestingly, for my book in terms of the way science fiction itself has created a kind of logic itself for for perpetuating the past through simulation, the kind of replicas that you were talking about, uh, the kind of cyborg artifacts <laughs> kind of working through the world now. It does, it does, it does suggest, um, it does suggest the kind of, I guess, the value of, of, of this kind of study that I that I'm proposing here, mm-hmm. but it's 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 hard to, it's hard to to witness. It's hard to engage. It's hard to try to step back and be and be uh, objective about. So, what do you hope the book will do? Well, I'm a, I'm a teacher at the, uh, the university. I'm in an English department. I teach 
book, I teach in my literature and I teach film and media. Um, I hope it's an example of the kind of lessons that I that I, I try to bring to class every day, and that we need to be first of all understand how stories themselves are are, are created. I also teach teach courses in creative writing, and by understanding structures, um, we can understand uh, how to be critical of those very structures themselves and the kinds of choices that uh, are available to us um, as audiences that we're not passive. That we can we can enter into um, the most banal of stories and try to understand well and, and to be, be resistant to the kinds of appeals that they generally make to our unintelligence our our, our our need for spectacle that in the end is really what this is about and I hope this is a lesson that this that this book is an expression of that larger uh, larger um, professional desire that I have. Can you speak to any difficulties you had in getting the book finished or published and how you overcame those? <laughs> well, these tend to come down to economic issues. Um, uh, I, I had, uh, this book I think has like 45 stills in them. Uh, I wanted to have about 100 images um, because uh, the, the book's always, you know, we stop at scenes. We need to really analyze what's in the frame. That was impossible for uh, copyright issues. Um, so, you know, I had to, I had to, you know, choose one, one moment, you know, one, 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 uh, frame capture, you know, for, for an entire movie, of, say Prometheus, you know, so that was difficult for sure. So it, it is difficult. I had to go back then and rewrite a lot of, a lot of what I did because I didn't have that image to, to bounce off, you know, um, so that was, a, that was probably the toughest thing. Um, so that's how I responded to that. Um. And and then you know I I, just had, I had to throw my own money or my own grant money actually at the at the book too so that uh, the whole thing could be printed in color so we have uh, these, these I think pretty nice uh, color images which which you can't really understand of contemporary cinema in black and white it's just it doesn't make any sense yeah so these illustrations aren't just illustrations they're there as kind of critical tools they're part of the argument mm-hmm. okay um. What's your next writing project? Oh, yeah, I've been on a bit of a fallow period this summer. That's for sure. I've been enjoying, uh, enjoying a bit of uh, non non writing time, but <laughs> of course I miss it too. Um, um, I'm interested really in what what can I take from this this project and other kinds of writing projects and and, and, and bring into a, into the classroom, not just through my kind of private. Um, private conversations or private moments with my own students, but to translate that into something that, that can be shared with other scholars who are, of course, interested uh, in, in uh, the challenges of, of, of helping students to see the broader picture in, in medium like uh, like science fiction. So uh, I'm into, I teach, I, I teach uh, post-colonial literature here at Bishop's University, and um, one of the films that I like to use in that course is District 9. Um, and uh, I think that's going to be the germ of the next the next project is to, is to look at the way media works within that film uh, and the way science fiction works within that film to uh, to ask some pretty interesting questions about about uh, the way colonial narratives continue to function in the world and how they they and why they still exist in such a such a, a, a 
not to say alarming, but they're such a, such a, they saturate colonial relationships of one culture dominating another. They seem to saturate popular science fiction. So mm. why is that? What does that say about, about our political relationships in the world? So those are the kinds of questions I like to bring to, to the class and I think would be an interesting, uh, interesting study in and of itself. So where can people find um, this book and maybe your your other thoughts and writings, say, on social media or somewhere online? Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly active in, in the social media world, that's for sure. Um, what you can do is send me an email, and I'll get yeah. back to you. Um, my work exists in, in, in mostly university libraries. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're available... Um, Nowadays, everything's available uh, through uh, you know, a PDF order, that sort of thing. Unfortunately, it's part of the part of the problem with um, with scholarly presses uh, is that they're small runs, and li- usually university libraries have limited access by these books. <clears throat> so that is an unfortunate uh, reality of the economics of the business mm-hmm. right now. Um, but if anyone's interested. Shoot me an email. I'll be happy to share. So you're on. So you're. You have an academic web page. I. I guess at where you teach. Yeah, that's right. It, uh, at uh, Bishop's University in Sherbrooke, Quebec. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find me there. Okay, and the book I assume is available on Amazon and Liverpool Press pro- sells it on their site. I guess. Yeah, that's right. Okay, um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Well, I'd just like to say thanks, uh, Chris, for, for giving me the time to speak about this, uh, this work, which I'm, I'm pretty passionate about, and I hope, I hope for, for viewers, uh, that they'll continue to ask really tough questions about, uh, about the science fiction medium. It's a, it's such a invaluable resource for, for being, for being a good human today. Oh, yeah, I agree. Um, well, thank you for speaking with me. Oh, it's my pleasure indeed. And don't forget to visit chrisalvarez.com or theartofsciencefiction.com for more great interviews, photos, and articles. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so with a donate button kitted on those pages. Thank you for listening. One of the best ways in which you can provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Uh, Please give me a good rating if you like this. Or uh, feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't, and I'll use that feedback to hopefully make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC, on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC, and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. You can also get more information on my website, chrisalvarez.com. Please remember my name, Chris, does not have an H. So it's C-R-I-S-A-L-V-A-R-E-Z.com. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the future.